where Matthew gives us his account of Jesus' resurrection. <clears throat> so if you would look, at me, look with me there, we'll begin in verse 1. Let's read the text now. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church through the Apostle Matthew, complete, inspired, and without error. Verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for He has risen, as He said. Come, see the place where He lay. Then go quickly and tell His disciples that He has risen from the dead. And behold, He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see Him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell His disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of His feet and worshipped Him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell My brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see Me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the, to the soldiers and said, Tell people His disciples came by night and stole Him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer and ask for His grace and His blessing as we consider His Word. Let's pray. Almighty God, we acknowledge today that we stand before You only because our Lord Jesus was once dead and is now dead no longer. We stand before You this morning, Father, in the power of His resurrection, in the hope of His resurrection, and in the joy of His new life. We pray, Father, that You would give us ears now to hear what You have spoken and revealed very clearly in Your Word, and that we would believe, Father, Again, maybe even for the first time, that we would believe and trust that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who was crucified and is now risen. That we would believe that He has paid for the sins of His people at the cross and He has made justification for them possible. He has accomplished it. Father, we pray that You would help us now to respond with joy and with hope at this good news. I pray that You would give me grace, Father, to speak clearly and faithfully and accurately from Your Word and that You would give us discernment as a church, that we would hold fast to the things that are true until the day when our Lord Jesus returns. 
We pray in His name and for His glory. Amen. One of the first passages of Scripture I learned as a little boy was a verse from Psalm 118. I can remember very clearly sitting in Sunday school in our small Baptist church in southwest Little Rock. My teacher's name was Miss Margaret. She taught me in Sunday school every year for three years, and I was the only kid in her class. It was that small. She put up with me for three years. And I would sit in her classroom in our small Baptist church, and I would say this verse, This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I'm sure some of you can probably remember learning that same verse as well. We even had a little song that I will mercifully not sing for you this morning. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You know, it's unfortunate that we tend to emphasize that verse with our children, but then neglect it when we get older. That verse is such a rock-solid truth for the soul. God's Word declares to us that each new day brings a reason to rejoice. Every time the sun rises, we're reminded of the mercies of God, that they are new every morning. Even when those days bring fresh trouble, we can still take comfort in the truth that all of our days, even the hard ones, are under the good providence of our sovereign Creator. Friends, that is a truth not just for children's ministry, that is a truth for all of life. And we should be slow to forget it. And yet, we should also be honest at this point. There are some days in this life that cause us to stop and ask, Really, Lord? You want me to rejoice in this day? Maybe it's the day you lose a job or lose a loved one. Or maybe it's the day you receive a frightening diagnosis. Or maybe it's the day that your prayer goes unanswered yet again. Or the day that your longing remains still unfulfilled. On those kinds of days, it's easy to hear that familiar verse from Psalm 118 and think, but how? How can I rejoice in this day? The answer, friends, is the truth we've gathered to celebrate today. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the bedrock joy of Christianity. That's the theme of my sermon this morning. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the bedrock joy of Christianity. The empty tomb is the seed that brings forth the fruit of all other rejoicing. That familiar verse from Psalm 118 is true for us precisely because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead never to die again. The joy of all other days rests on the joy of this day, Easter morning. Resurrection Sunday. If you look at verse 8 from our passage, you can see that joy was the first response to the resurrection among Jesus' followers. Notice again what Matthew says. So they, being Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they departed quickly with fear and great joy. Now, the women are fearful because they have clearly encountered something supernatural. If you saw your master who was dead three days ago and is now alive, you'd be afraid too. But even in their fear, what do we find with them? Great joy. You see? From the beginning, the resurrection of Christ has been the bedrock joy of Christianity. 
It's the reason we can say with honest faith, honest faith, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. The tomb is empty, and therefore believers have a joy that can never die. So in light of that truth, here's what I want to do this Easter morning. I want to work through the account of Jesus' resurrection in Matthew 28, and I want to highlight for you five reasons for rejoicing. Five reasons for rejoicing. So think of this sermon as something like drilling down to that bedrock joy. We want to drill down deep, and then we want to sink our faith in these rock-solid reasons for rejoicing. That's my aim. Five reasons for joy. We begin in verses 1-4 to with our first reason. We rejoice in the power of our sovereign God. We rejoice in the power of our sovereign God. As chapter 28 begins, Matthew sets the scene for the good news of the resurrection. Like the other Gospel writers, he describes a group of women who visit the garden tomb early on Sunday morning. These dear women have faithfully stayed near Jesus as He died. They witnessed where He was buried, and now they've come again to the tomb. Try to picture it in your mind. It's quiet. The sun's just coming up. And these women expect to be left alone in their grief. But, then the quiet of the morning is unexpectedly interrupted and in a mighty way. God Himself intervenes with an incredible display of power that demands everyone's attention. It begins suddenly in verse 2. Look what Matthew says. He describes a great earthquake. Now, this is the second earthquake to occur in connection with Jesus. You'll remember in chapter 27, there was an earthquake in connection with His death. And it signaled the judgment of God coming down upon Jesus. This earthquake is different. It doesn't signal God's judgment on Jesus, but God's power to exalt Jesus. So think of creation here as a witness. This earthquake is creation's testimony that something mighty has happened. This is the creation raising its voice, not in terror, but in hopeful expectation that God is indeed making all things new. You see, it's more than the setting for the scene. This is a mighty moment that testifies to God's power. And if there was any doubt as to the meaning of the earthquake, God clears it up for us by sending an angel of the Lord to roll away the stone. Now, the angel's not rolling away the stone to let Jesus out. Jesus is already gone. He rolls away the stone not for Jesus, but for us, so that we can see there's nobody in there. The angel comes down from heaven. He's from the very presence of God. Even the angel's appearance, his, his glorious, radiant appearance, points to God. So, so put it all together. The earthquake, the angel, the stone rolled away. It's all the power of God, friends. It's all the power of God. It's astonishing to see the Almighty God breaks into this world to magnify the risen Christ. And amazingly, it's not finished. Look what happens in verse 4. And for fear of Him, that is the angel, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Now, I want you to catch the irony of this moment. 
These soldiers are stationed to guard a dead man in this tomb. But here they are, laid out like dead men, and the guy who was dead is now alive. It's a perfect picture of the power of God. Nothing can stand in His way. You see, not only does God overcome every barrier, but He does so in such a way to make those barriers look like silly child's play. You could have had every soldier from every army on the face of the earth in front of that tomb, and at the slightest movement of God's little finger, they'd fall down dead. Nothing can stand in His way. His power is mighty. It is glorious. And it is unstoppable. And consider this, brothers and sisters. This power that we see at work in these verses, in Jesus' resurrection, is the same power now at work in us, His people. It's the same power. Remember how the Apostle Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 1? He prayed that God would enlighten our eyes to understand the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. It's the same power. The same mighty, glorious, unstoppable power. So be encouraged, brothers and sisters. God has promised to finish every good work He's begun in your life, and He's more than capable of doing so. Nothing will stand in His way. That's what the resurrection is saying to you this morning. Nothing will stand in the way of God's purposes for His people. Not the suffering in this world, not the wickedness of the evil people plotting to scheme against the church, not even your own sin. Nothing will stand in God's way. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is now at work in us in Christ's people. We rejoice today in the power of our sovereign God, and in that power, we also find the assurance of our salvation. That's the first reason. The second reason for joy comes in verses 5-7. to We rejoice this morning in the death of death. We rejoice in the death of death. You'll notice in verse 5, the angel ignores the guards, but he speaks to the women. There's no reason to fear, the angel says. He knows why they have come. They are seeking Jesus who was crucified. Now, don't miss that description. The angel affirms the reality of Jesus' death. It was not a mirage. It was not an elaborate show. Jesus wasn't just passed out from the pain and then woke up later. He was crucified. He truly died on the cross. So when His body was placed in the tomb, it was cold and lifeless. Our boys asked us this week as we were reading through the Gospel accounts, what was Jesus doing on Saturday? He was dead. He was really dead. Truly dead. The angel knows why the women have come. But then the angel announces the good news that changes everything. Verse 6, He is not here, for He has risen, as He said. So the same reality that was attached to Jesus' death is now attached to Jesus' resurrection. Just as Jesus truly died on the cross, He is now truly alive, having taken up His life again in victory over the grave. You see, the angel wants the women to understand that a tomb is now the wrong place to seek Jesus. Why would you seek the living among the dead? 
The Jesus who was crucified is now the Jesus who has risen. And understand, friends, this moment in the garden is the most significant moment in human history. It's the most significant moment in all of human history. These few women are the first to hear the news that quite literally changes everything. It changes their lives. It changes the lives of God's people. It even changes the very creation itself. Remember that ever since Eden, humanity had lived in the grip of sin. And sin's mastery over humanity had been painfully evidenced in death. Generation after generation, people died. And every one of those deaths was a reminder that something was not right. This was not how things are supposed to be. For thousands of years, that's how humanity lived. Always mindful of their slavery to sin and always captive to the power of death. But at this moment, all of that changes. When the angel says, He is risen... He is not here. He's not only announcing the resurrection of Jesus, He's also proclaiming the death of death. The tyranny is over, friends. Jesus has conquered sin at the cross. And now He has defeated death through His resurrection. You see, that's part of the magnitude of this moment. Jesus' resurrection is not an isolated, solitary event. It's actually the beginning, the very dawn of the new creation. The eternal life that awaits God's people begins right here in this quiet garden. It breaks into this world the way the sun rises each new day. And since it has broken in, it can never be stopped. It's true, we still suffer death in this life. We still see the effects of sin in our own bodies and in the creation around us. But now we face those realities with hope. The new life that began in Jesus' resurrection will soon spread across all of God's creation, transforming everything, including us. And what I want us to take away from this at this moment is that fighting for faith in this resurrection hope is the daily Christian life. I know that Easter Sundays have a lot of significance attached to them, and so we expect something maybe transcendent or unusual to happen in our souls because it's Easter and it's the one day of year that we do this. But what I really want to encourage you this morning with is that daily fighting for faith in the resurrection hope is the normal Christian life. Every day, we go to God's Word, we read these same promises again, and we believe. Every day, we speak the truth to one another, we remember, and we believe. And as we live this way, day after day, something incredible happens. It happens slowly, but over time, the power of Christ's resurrection bears fruit in our lives as well. We find hope in the midst of heartache. We find faith in the midst of tribulation. We find confidence instead of fear. We find life in the face of death. And on and on we could go. You see, there's no secret as to how the truth of the resurrection works out in your life if you're a believer. There's really no secret. It happens through the daily, sometimes hourly embrace of faith. Believing the promises are true because the tomb is gloriously empty. It is fitting, isn't it, that this moment takes place in a garden. Think about it. Where did death's reign of terror begin? 
in a garden as Adam's sin plunged humanity into slavery. But now where has death's reign ended? In a garden as a second Adam, a better Adam, frees us from that tyranny and promises freedom to all who are found in Him. We rejoice today in the death of death. That's our second reason. Reason number three comes in verses 8 to 10. Here we rejoice in the majesty and mercy of the Savior. We rejoice in the majesty and mercy of the Savior. The women follow the angel's instructions and they head off to tell the disciples. What a privilege for these dear women to be the first witnesses and now to give the first testimony of what God has done. So in verse 8, they head off full of both fear and joy. But as the women go, they meet someone even greater and more glorious than an angel. Look at verse 9. They meet the risen Christ in the flesh, standing now in front of them. Matthew proceeds to describe the encounter between the women and the risen Christ. And in describing it, he gives us two aspects of Jesus' character, and both are meant for our encouragement. First off, Matthew shows us Jesus' majesty. Notice what the women do in verse 9. They took hold of His feet and worshipped Him. That's such a striking picture. Before they ask any questions or make any other statements, they bow in worship. They take hold of His feet because they're on the ground. Even their posture reveals their awe. They know they are in the presence of God in the flesh. So they bow before His majesty. And notice, friends, Jesus doesn't correct them. Did you notice that? He doesn't correct them. He receives their worship because it rightfully belongs to Him. You may be visiting with us this morning and you may have questions about who Jesus truly is or why Christians confess Him to be both God and man together in one person. If so, friend, then this moment in verse 9 gives you a clear answer. Jesus receives their worship because He is God. He's not simply a good man or a wise teacher. If that's all Jesus was, then He would tell these women to get up and stop worshiping Him. He would be appalled at their attempt to offer Him what He does not deserve. You see, the view that Jesus is just a good man simply doesn't square with what we see over and over in the Bible. He is God in the flesh the Son of God, sent to save His people. And that means worship is the right response. The only response. In fact, I would contend that before Jesus will answer your questions, He demands that you bow before Him and worship. So I encourage you this morning, before you conclude Jesus is just like other religious figures, consider His majesty in verse 9 and ask yourself, do I worship this Jesus by faith? For that is truly what He deserves. The Apostle Matthew's not finished. Along with majesty, he also shows us Jesus' mercy. Notice how Jesus addresses the women. Again, verse 9, He says, Greetings. Now, that seems simple enough, but that is part of the point. This is how someone in the first century would welcome the people with whom he is close and intimately related. This isn't the formal pronouncement you might hear from, the, from a king. 
This is the warm hello you would receive from your friend. It's such a tender moment. The risen Christ who has conquered death, who has unrivaled power, who is the sovereign king of all the universe, greets these dear women not as his subjects, but as his friends. Because that is what they are. But the mercy continues on into verse 10. Jesus repeats the angel's instructions. The women are to report back to the disciples, telling them to meet the Lord in Galilee. But notice how Jesus describes the disciples in verse 10. He calls them, My brothers. Now, remember what these men have just done to Jesus. They abandoned Him. They deserted Him. They took three years of investment for, from Him and they traded it for the safety of running away. They denied they even knew Him at His hour of greatest need. And yet, here at the first opportunity for Jesus to speak about them, He doesn't call them cowards. He doesn't call them failures. He calls them My brothers. The Lord whom they denied includes them in His family, belonging to Him and to His Father. You see, that's the whole reason why Jesus wants to meet them in Galilee in the first place. Because He plans to restore them and then use them for the sake of His kingdom. Oh, brothers and sisters, what a merciful Savior we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our failures are no match for His mercy. He is not finished with His disciples and He is not finished with us. Even when we have turned our backs on Him, He is not deterred. If there is mercy for Peter, there is mercy for you, friend. He is mercifully always working on our behalf. It could be that you're here this morning and you've professed faith in Christ before, but you know, if you're honest, that you've been straying from Him for some time. You can relate to the disciples because you too know the heartache of many failures. If so, then I pray you would hear Jesus' mercy calling you back to Him this morning. He will not turn away those who belong to Him. Even right now, at this moment, when we confess our sin and turn from our straying, the Lord Jesus will restore us as His own. He will always receive His people once more. So, so don't stay far away. Don't, don't stay far away. Don't assume Jesus has run out of mercy. His mercy never ends, friends. It is new every morning. I pray you would see that truth and believe. We rejoice today in the majesty and the mercy of the Savior. That's reason number three. Let's look at number four. The fourth reason for joy comes from an unlikely place, the scheming of the religious leaders in verses 11 to 15. Here we rejoice in the frustration of the wicked. We rejoice in the frustration of the wicked. Matthew breaks away from the women in order to fill us in on the Jewish religious leaders. Notice verse 11. Some of the guards at the tomb have come to their senses and they go to tell the religious leaders what happened. Now, remember, the guards saw the angel, they saw the stone rolled away, and when they came to, they would have seen that the tomb was empty. They report all of that 
back to the religious leaders. Nobody's in the dark as to what's going on. They give them the full account. But instead of considering the truth of these things, the religious leaders concoct a deceptive plan. They bribe the soldiers to lie and say that while they were sleeping, the disciples stole Jesus' body. Never mind the fact that that story makes no sense. If the guards were sleeping, how did they see the disciples come and take the body? What's more, if the disciples stole the body, then why not simply have them arrested? For according to Jewish law, stealing a corpse is a capital offense. So just arrest them. You see, the entire scene is fanciful, it's chucked full of problems, and it's just downright wicked. So, the question we need to answer then is, what's the takeaway for us as followers of Christ today? What are we to make of this particular scene? Well, I would say there are at least two connections for us. First of all, we're reminded how difficult it is to deny the truth of the resurrection. We're reminded of how difficult it is to deny this truth. I like how one pastor put it in regards to these, vo- these verses. Uh, this is what he says, quote, The unbeliever has to work really hard to come up with some sort of explanation as to how this is all working out. That's true. And we see this played out year after year, don't we? There is a seemingly never-ending stream of Easter specials, each one proclaiming to have the truth about what really happened to Jesus. Friends, the truth is really quite clear. The tomb was empty. There was no body in it. And 500 people saw Him alive. What's more, His disciples who were fearful and abandoned Him went on to lose their lives for this very truth. Why would they die for a hoax? You see, you've got to work extremely hard to deny the reality of the resurrection. But that's the tragic condition of the human heart apart from God's grace. We take the clearest, most well-attested truth and we deny it in favor of fanciful, pathetic schemes. That's the first thing we should take away. The second is this. Quite simply, their deception doesn't work. Their deception doesn't work. Just a few short weeks later, Peter would stand up in this same city and proclaim the truth of Jesus' resurrection. And from that one sermon, 3,000 souls were added to the church. And it didn't stop there. The church continued to grow, spreading out all across the known world, even bringing countless numbers of Gentiles to faith in Christ. And what's more, that progress has come all the way down to us. Think about it, friends. Our presence here this morning proves the foolishness of the religious leaders. Here we are 2,000 years later believing, proclaiming, and rejoicing in the very truth they tried to suppress. Their scheme didn't work. Brothers and sisters, consider how important and how helpful this truth is for us today. All around us, we see the wicked plotting and scheming against Christ and against His church. Just last Sunday, on Palm Sunday, scores of Christians in Egypt were killed as bombs blew up in their worship services. What do you say to that? Would you go to church on Easter Sunday if that happened on Palm Sunday? What do you say to that? And what's more, where do you turn in those moments? What are those pastors saying to their grieving people? They're coming back again and again to scenes like this and holding on to the truth that God frustrates the plans of the wicked. 
You see, that's part of why these verses are so important for our lives today. Because they remind us that the wicked may prosper for a time, but they cannot put Christ back in the grave. Listen, as a church, I'm talking about church at large, particularly our church, but then the church at large, we need to recover the use and the embrace of passages like Psalm 2 for the life of the church. You remember Psalm 2, right? Psalm 2 begins, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take counsel against the Lord and against His anointed. Is that not a description of our day? And yet, how does the Almighty respond? He who sits in heaven laughs. Then He will speak to them saying, As for me, I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. You can rage and you can scheme, but you can't touch God's King. Brothers and sisters, that truth is an anchor for the soul. An anchor that is purchased for us at the resurrection. The wicked may scheme and plot, and they may even prosper for a time, but they cannot touch Jesus. And one day very soon, the Lord Jesus will return and He will put an end to every scheme. And on that day, the wicked will beg for mountains to crush them, to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. One day very soon, He is coming back and He will establish God's kingdom once and for all. If you do not know this Christ, today is the day of repentance. Do not harden your heart. He is coming again. And when He comes again, He will not come with a message of peace, but with the reality of God's judgment for all who have opposed Him. If you don't know Him, flee to Him this morning in repentance and in faith and be saved. On this Resurrection Sunday, we rejoice at the frustration of the wicked. That brings us to our final reason for joy, which flows from the previous point. We rejoice this morning in the triumph of the King. We rejoice in the triumph of the King. Matthew concludes his Gospel account with what is commonly known as the Great Commission. These verses are the marching orders for the church. Until the Lord Jesus returns, we are to give ourselves to the work of making disciples, baptizing people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded. That's what discipleship is. It's living in obedience by faith to what Jesus has said. Time and cultures change, but the mission of the church does not change. It is always the work of discipleship. The church has one job. Make disciples. However, sometimes in our eagerness to get to the mission in verse 19, we miss the connection with Jesus' resurrection. And that's what I want to emphasize here. Notice how the Great Commission is bookended with truths not about us, but about Jesus. Notice how the commission begins in verse 18 with Jesus' unlimited authority. The Lord says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Friends, that is a declaration of kingship. Jesus is taking the language of Daniel chapter 7 about this king that would come and rule over all things, and he's saying, Daniel 7 is about me. I'm the king. I have all authority. Through the resurrection, Jesus has been established as the sovereign ruler. There's nothing that lies outside of His authority. Both heaven and earth belong to Him. This is why we can go into all nations, because all nations belong to Christ. 
So the commission begins with Jesus' unlimited authority that has been revealed in His resurrection. Then notice how the commission ends in verse 20 with Jesus' never-ending presence. It begins with unlimited authority. It ends with never-ending presence. The Lord says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Friends, that's a declaration of provision. Because Jesus has conquered death, there is nothing that can separate us from Him. There is nowhere we can go that will take us away from the Savior. Again, this is why we can go into all nations. Because wherever we go, Christ goes with us. His authority is not bound by borders or other kingdoms. He rules everything. The commission ends with Jesus' never-ending presence. So, Put those two things together. From beginning to end, our mission as the church flows from Jesus' resurrection. The church's mission is not upheld by our efforts as important as those are. They're not upheld, it's not upheld by us. The church's mission is upheld by the resurrection of Christ. As we sang earlier, we are the people of the risen King. And our mission is advanced not by our strength, but by the strength of our once dead and now alive Savior. And therefore, therefore, even as we labor in the mission, we labor with joy. So we rejoice this morning that these following truths that I'm about to say are as certain as the tomb is empty. We rejoice in these truths. The gospel will spread across the globe. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And salvation will reach people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We rejoice in those truths. And then in the power of that joy, we go and we work. All of those truths are precious to us because Jesus is alive. And we rejoice today in His triumph. So the resurrection of Christ is the bedrock joy of Christianity. All other joys rest upon the joy that we celebrate this day. And so, brothers and sisters, I want to close us with a familiar verse. One that I pray will now give fresh encouragement to our souls. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it, for Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are full to the brim with joy at the triumph of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we tremble to think, Father, that You would reveal such great and awesome truths to us. We do not deserve to know You, Father. We have no goodness on our own to commend ourselves to You. It is grace upon grace that we would see Christ and rejoice in Him today. We pray that You would strengthen our faith, Father. We pray that You would fill us with joy inexpressible and full of glory and that the power of that joy which comes from the Lord Jesus would compel us outward to proclaim His name among all the nations of the earth. Father, use us to bring people to see this great Christ. We pray in His name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.
had turned from God to sin's disgrace. We chose the path to hell. Perfect law of God condemned our race. For all in Adam fell. But the righteousness of God appeared. And the world found hope again. For the righteous one has come down to bear all the curse of sin and death. Now to him who seated on the throne, all glory be forever. All oh, the depths of wisdom, grace, and in Jesus' grave. We've been freed from all that gripped our past, from Satan's rule and reign. We've been raised to life to breathe His grace as captives now reclaim. All our guilt is gone, all our striving cease. We're alive to seek His fame. Now to him who seated on the throne, all glory be forever. Oh, the depths of wisdom, grace, and power, all glory be forever. fixed our journey clear God will not let us go every trial that tempts our hearts to fear he'll use to give us hope all creation groans as we await what our eyes have longed to see every pain and evil we've long endured We'll be crushed by Christ our King. Now to Him who seated on the throne, all glory be forever. The depths of wisdom, grace, and power, all glory be forever. Now to Him who seated on the throne, all glory be the depths of wisdom, grace, and power. All glory be forever. All glory be forever. All glory be forever. Be 
Sorry about that. How's it going? Christ the Lord is risen today. Alleluia. Sons of men and angels say, Alleluia. Raise your joys and triumphs high. Alleluia. Sing ye heavens and earth reply. Alleluia. Vain the stone, the watch, the seal. on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed.